Few are immune to the allure of buried treasure. Just hearing the phrase conjures up images of daring escapades, chests of gold, and an X that marks the spot. Myths of buried treasure are often accompanied by the exploits of nefarious outlaws and their ill-gotten gains. These rogues die with their secrets, leaving us with only subtle clues and vague legends as to whether or not their treasure is real. This is the case in the story of King John's lost treasure, the English crown jewels, which vanished in the year 1216. King John fits the mold of a storybook villain. He taxed his subjects mercilessly to satisfy his own greed. He abused his people and offended his allies. When he died, he was missed by few. Even his nickname, Bad King John, sounds like it comes straight out of a storybook adventure. He was the kind of larger-than-life villain from whom treasure was meant to be stolen. And yet, 800 years later, we still don't know what happened to his lost treasure, or if it exists at all. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at parcast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. In last week's episode, we studied the life and death of King John, who was recognized as one of the worst monarchs in English history. As king, he was defeated by the French in two wars, losing large swaths of territory, including his family's ancestral lands in Normandy. He alienated his own people by taxing them heavily to pay for his military blunders. He also instilled the fear of eternal damnation when his actions forced the church to place the entirety of England under interdict. As a person, he was a sexual lecher who took advantage of women and girls throughout his life. He was ruthless with his enemies and unfaithful to his allies. He was cowardly in battle, constantly retreating and letting his men die for him. To top it off, he lost the crown jewels in the final week of his life. This week, we'll examine more closely the events surrounding the final days of King John's. We'll see if there's any merit to the legends that say the treasure was not lost, but scuttled away in secret to pay off a royal debt to an order of knights. We'll also take a look at the modern attempts that have been made to locate the treasure and examine the findings of determined treasure hunters who've taken on the daunting task of searching the area known as the Wash. And we'll try to gauge the significance of the crown jewels in today's world. If they are technically still the property of the British government, is a private citizen search really worth the effort? If you go to the town of Kings Lynn, England, you'll find a life-sized bronze statue of King John in the town center. 
This statue was unveiled on October 12, 2016, 800 years to the day that John's baggage train was overtaken by the tidal waters of the wash and the crown jewels were lost forever. At that time, King's Lynn was known as Bishop's Lynn. He stayed there the night before the crown jewels were lost. The king knew he was in safe territory. The townspeople revered him then, and even to this day, he's still held in high regard. This was because in 1204, John granted a charter that allowed the town to govern itself. This charter established a merchant guild, which created thriving businesses and made the town a popular center for trade. The people of Bishop's Lynn became wealthy from the trade the charter allowed. Because of this, Bishop's Lynn was one of the few provinces that stayed loyal to John in his war with the barons. It is here, in Bishop's Lynn, where our search for King John's treasure begins. The town is on the eastern side of the Wash, an inlet of the North Sea. Today, much of the area has been reclaimed for farming purposes. But in King John's time, Bishop's Lynn was on the shore. To reclaim an area like this, you have to drain it. In the 18th and 19th centuries, advancements in engineering allowed the low-lying plain to be drained via the use of steam pumps. Miles of embankments were built along the sea and river inlets in this time to allow vegetation to grow and crops to be planted. Today, these embankments protect the farmland from flooding, and much of the area is solid ground. High tide doesn't reach miles inland as it did in King John's time. This farmland may seem like an unlikely place to begin a search for buried treasure, but one of the few things King John was good at was keeping a diary. He chronicled every day of his life when he traveled. From these diaries, we know that the caravan left Bishop's Lynn on October 11, 1216, bound for Spalding, 30 miles to the west. And we know it stopped in Walpole, only 12 miles away. However, John himself did not rest with his wagon train. He rode south to Wisbeach to spend the night. The next day, October 12, 1216, John's caravan set out without him across the wash to Spalding. Historians have concluded that the tide overtook the baggage train somewhere between Walpole and the area around Sutton Bridge, a few miles away. As we mentioned last week, the area was famous for its stolen tides, which came at unexpected intervals. As the caravan had crossed this same expanse several days earlier, it's very possible the drivers assumed the ground was still safe. They thought an early morning start across the wash would give them more than enough time to traverse the area before high tide. That's why they may have only made it a few miles before the unexpected tide came early and the train found itself suddenly underwater, sinking in the quicksand. Today, this entire area has been reclaimed and is now solid ground. To complicate matters further, 800 years of silt deposits means that any treasure that might have been spilled there would be at least 20 feet underground, perhaps even as deep as 60 feet. This means someone can't just scour the area with a metal detector and hope to find something. The treasure would be too far deep to be discovered by conventional methods. To concentrate the search to a specific area, you would have to figure out the exact path the caravan took across the wash. When the tide was out, the only way to travel across a marsh was on a causeway, a naturally raised track through the wet ground. 
Several days before the accident, the caravan had crossed the wash on one of these causeways, going in the other direction to Bishop's Lynn. It's very likely the caravan took the same path when it returned. But how do we search for an ancient causeway that's been buried under the soil for centuries? This is where modern technology comes into play. The first breakthrough that treasure hunters had was aerial photographs of the wash in the 1960s. These pictures showed where the soil changed color based on the depth of the silt deposits. The ancient causeways through the wash would be invisible at ground level. But from a bird's eye view, they started to reveal themselves. In 1963, geologist David Evans of Nottingham University was examining the wash in an attempt to find the rate of decay for marine organisms in the sediment. At the same time, James Holt, a professor of medieval history also at Nottingham, was studying King John's final days and trying to pinpoint the spot where the crown jewels were lost. The two men combined their searches. Evans used aerial photography to determine the placement of the causeway through what was now fertile farmland. Holt used King John's journals to gauge the route that the caravan would have taken west from Walpole through the wash. Together, they made an educated guess as to the route of the causeway at the time the treasure was lost. Evans knew that if something was found from King John's treasure, he could use the depth at which it was located as a timestamp to study the decay. Through aerial photographs provided by the British Air Ministry, they determined that there was a causeway that snaked west from Walpole and would have been the most direct route to Spalding through the wash. This was where they dug. With a team of students and postgraduate researchers, they drilled pipes into the ground to see what they could find. The first few holes they dug came up empty. Even worse, once they hit the quicksand, about 15 feet down, the holes filled up as they pulled the pipe. This made examination more difficult, but they regrouped and changed the type of pipe they were using, allowing them to make deeper holes. Finally, One of these pipes struck something. The equipment wasn't able to drill deeper than 25 feet. They realized the pipe must have gotten lodged in something. They pulled up a chunk of metal and brought it to the lab for examination. Results showed the metals they found were not naturally occurring. There were various metals, including iron, steel, and silver, that could only have come off of something that was manufactured. Something like the knobs of a horse cart or a chest, or maybe perhaps a sword. There was another type of metal they found that excited them most of all, gold. These samples were all discovered at a depth of around 25 feet. Given the steady rate at which metal pieces would have sunk into the earth, the scientists knew these samples had to have been placed there during the 13th century, around the time of King John's reign. With this discovery, the next logical step for a treasure hunter would be to bring in giant land movers to excavate the area until they found the treasure. Unfortunately, such a task was, and still is, implausible due to the landscape. An excavation of that scale would allow salt water to seep into the basin, which would ruin the lush farmland that has been reclaimed through engineered draining. Even with the estimated value of the treasure being around $70 million, the risk of irreversible damage to the environment would not be worth the effort. 
large-scale excavations are out of the question. In the modern era, treasure hunters have used LIDAR as a way to search the wetlands. LIDAR, or light detection and ranging, is a method of surveying the land by pulsating the ground with lasers to come up with an accurate depth of the landscape. This technology is based on the same principles as aerial photography. If we can see how the terrain looked in King John's time, we can make a more accurate guess as to the route his baggage train took across the wash and therefore narrow our search for the treasure. World-renowned metal detectorist Gary Drayton employed this technology on his quest to retrieve the long-lost crown jewels. In 2017, his search yielded several promising finds, including a carved seal featuring England's three lions, a silver coin, and a hunter's animal trap. All of these have been dated at about the same time of King John's Crossing. But none of the findings in the area so far have been confirmed to be a part of King John's caravan. This may not be a coincidence. There is a chance that people may continue to search the area and come up empty. That's because the jewels may have already been found. We'll discuss that possibility right after this. Now back to the story. Modern efforts to locate King John's treasure have thus far only turned up metal and dirt. But could it be that the treasure was never buried in the first place? In the 14th century, a local baron named Robert de Tiptoft suddenly became very wealthy. He died in April 1372, a much richer man than he was born. His three daughters all married the sons of powerful families, thanks to their impressive dowries from their inheritance. While there's no evidence to prove it, the story goes that Lord Tiptoff salvaged some of King John's treasure from the wash, sold it, and lived a life of luxury off its profits. This subject is rife with similar legends. Early 20th century author William A. Dutt passed down the fable of King John's Hole, which was supposedly a pool south of Bishop's Lynn. According to local lore, this was a mysterious crevice where the crown jewels were hidden before the baggage train left to cross the wash. A different tale says King John's Hole was known only to the people who recovered the jewels after they were lost and stashed there. Of course, there's no recorded history that tells of the location of this hole or approves its existence. If we are to believe that King John purposely left his treasure in Bishop's Lynn and the whole story was made up as a cover, then one question remains. Why? If the presumption is that John used the crown jewels to pay someone, who is he paying? There's a group of people that figure into the saga of King John that we have yet to discuss. In stories like these, involving kings and popes, medieval warfare, and hidden treasures, these men always seem to be lurking in the shadows. We're talking about the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar were an order of the Church of Rome whose chief mandate was the military defenses of the Holy Lands. However, they quickly grew quite wealthy, as prominent churchmen visiting Jerusalem paid handsomely for a Templar security detail. By the time of King John's reign, the Templars had established themselves as not only a highly skilled army, but also as a money-lending operation. In short, they were one of the world's first international banks. The House of Plantagenet, from which John descended, had a long history with the Templars. When John was a young boy in 1170, his father, King Henry II, arranged the murder of Thomas Becket. 
Bagot, a close friend of the king, was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Henry assumed that this would give him power and influence over the church, but Becket did not bend to the king's will and instead became a fierce defender of the church's independence from the monarch's rule. Eventually, the enraged king had had enough. He famously cried out, Will nobody rid me of this turbulent priest? Several of his men took this request literally. They murdered Thomas Becket at the altar of his own cathedral. The Pope absolved King Henry of this hideous crime, but not without penance. During this era in European history, a person as powerful as a king could get away with committing a grave sin for a price. Henry was made to finance the maintenance and upkeep of 200 Knights Templar in their stations in the Holy Land. Additionally, he granted the Knights some newly gained land in Ireland. This was no small sum and it made King Henry and his family friends of the Templars for life. When Henry's son Richard the Lionheart embarked on the Third Crusade, the Templars fought bravely at his side. Richard left Jerusalem in victory, having conquered the Holy Land for the Christians. A great part of his success can be attributed to the military aid he received from the Knights Templar. When Richard died, his younger brother King John would benefit from this special relationship. The Templars were always there to help King John when he needed it the most. In 1208, John disobeyed the Pope and backed a rival to the Archbishop of Canterbury and was excommunicated for five years. But the Templars came to his aid. They lent John a gold mark, which he then gave to the Pope to lift his banishment. The Templars helped fund John's campaign against his rebellious barons. The Grand Prior of the Templars in England, Brother Americ, was present at the signing of the Magna Carta. His name is even listed on the document as a witness. It is quite possible that the crown jewels were used to pay back the Knights Templar for their years of loyalty to King John and his family. The day after the treasure was lost, King John went to Swineshead Abbey to be treated for dysentery. He would die at the Abbey. Depending on which story you believe, the monks poisoned him, or more likely, he surfeited himself on pears and cider until he expired. The monk who is said to have poisoned John was Brother Simon, and he had connections with the Knights Templar. If we're following this theory, then perhaps it's possible that King John had reneged on a promise or otherwise slighted the Templars, and in retaliation, they saw to it that he never left Swineshead Abbey alive. This theory is supported by the fact that the great relationship between the English monarchy and the Knights Templar became pretty one-sided under John's rule. For all the financial and military assistance the Templars gave to John and his brother and his father before him, all John seems to have given the Templars in return were some inconsequential lands like the tiny island of Lundy off England's west coast. Henry and Richard gave generously to the Templars and were rewarded with their patronage. John received the same support, but did not reciprocate in kind. The Templars may have taken action to remedy this. The Knights Templar were a lending institution after all. John might have been an early example of a borrower defaulting on a loan and having his assets repossessed. Except, in this case, his assets included his life. This isn't outside the realm of possibility for an organization like the Knights Templar. 
Their capacity for secrecy knew no bounds. Still, the question lingers. Who benefits? A Templar plot to murder the king and steal his riches, while possible, seems unlikely given all we know. For one, the Templars remained loyal to the royal family after John's death and assisted John's son, King Henry III, throughout his reign. Furthermore, they were John's bankers. It would have been bad for business to take him out. The value of the crown jewels would not have been worth the loss of the relationship with the richest king in the world. It is still plausible that John used the crown jewels as payment to the Templars for their loyalty, and his death just a few days afterwards was a bizarre coincidence. The Templars could have melted down the jewels, added the metal to their coffers, and their military and political might would have continued unabated. The actions of one man helps lend weight to this theory. His name is William Marshall, who was quite possibly the greatest knight of the medieval period. We discussed Marshall briefly last week, but his story is worth closer examination. He was fiercely loyal to King John as one of the few barons who did not rebel against him. He was present at the signing of the Magna Carta. He was even at John's bedside when he died. Perhaps most significantly, at the end of his life, William Marshall became a member of the Knights Templar. The life of William Marshall is like something out of a medieval epic filled with personal honor, battlefield sacrifice, and loyalty to king and country. He was born in 1147. At the age of five, he was taken hostage by King Stephen after the civil war known as the Anarchy. King Stephen admired the boy's courage throughout his captivity and ultimately chose to take William under his wing. Naturally, this instilled in young William a devotion to the crown that would last for the rest of his life. As a young man, he excelled at jousting in tournaments and became known across England as one of the best jousters in the country. At age 21, William was welcomed into the royal family when he helped put down a rebellion against John's mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. She took William in to help raise her eldest son, Henry, to become a brave knight. The young king died of natural causes while his father was still alive. Thus, he was never named Henry III. Distressed by the sudden loss of his friend and protege, William went to Jerusalem to fight in the Crusades. Upon his return, King Henry II repaid William for his service and loyalty. William was allowed to marry a wealthy heiress and was named Earl of Pembroke. William fought against Richard the Lionheart during Richard's rebellion against his father. When the two men met on the battlefield, William bested Richard in combat, but chose to spare his life. Later, when Richard was king of England, he called on William to explain why he had shown mercy. William responded that he would fight for and defend the king, but would not see harm come to the royal family. Richard admired William's loyalty and accepted him into his court. When Richard died, it shocked no one that William pledged his continued loyalty. Though John was a bad king, a pathetic shadow of the man his brother and father had been, William never rebelled. However, William did refuse to enforce John's terrible policies. Loyal to the end, William was with John during the last week of the king's life. On King John's deathbed, he spoke of William's loyalty. William was made regent to John's heir, the nine-year-old Henry III. 
This means that William spoke for the king until the king came of age. As the war with the barons was still raging at the time of King John's death, it was William Marshall's actions as acting king that saved England from ruin. At the spry age of 70, William led a charge against the remnants of the rebel forces at the Battle of Lincoln in 1217. His victory ended the civil war that John had started and saved England as we know it. To find proof that Marshall became a Templar, you only have to visit his tomb. He is interred in the Temple Church in London, a church built by the Knights Templar. Marshall was laid to rest with his brother Knights, and his body lies there to this day. Maybe we can assess from the actions of the Knights Templar personified by William Marshall that the crown jewels were put aside to repay a loan. Maybe that loan was to William Marshall. Maybe the Knights Templar took the crown jewels as collateral to keep the House of Plantagenet intact after the disastrous reign of King John. Very little is known about the period of William Marshall's life when he went to the Holy Lands to fight in the Crusades. But it is during this time when he is said to have made his first contact with the Knights Templar. From then on until his death in 1219, Marshall never strayed from his loyalty to the royal family. The Templars' fealty to the House of Plantagenet continued with the child king, Henry III. As he came of age, Henry had many dealings with the Templars throughout his reign, and the partnership between the crown and the Templars returned to being mutually beneficial. Which means that King John's reign was the aberration. John's father, two brothers, and his son had proportional transactional dealings with the Templars, John overstepped his bounds, and the Templars could have decided to even the score. Perhaps the crown jewels were lost in the wash. Perhaps not. It's possible they were stolen, melted down, and used as a payoff. It's possible the Knights Templar played a role in their disappearance, and it's possible that some lucky scoundrels found them and hid them, or made off with them. In any discussion of the missing crown jewels, one has to consider how the treasure is relevant in this day and age. Do the crown jewels represent a kingdom and its people? In this day and age, how strong is the appeal for medieval treasure? Do we just want more old things to look at in museums? Or do they represent something greater that brings us together as nations or cultures? We'll try to answer these questions next. Now, back to the story. There is a fascination with the medieval period that doesn't seem to go away. Our culture loves anything to do with kings and queens, castles and princesses, sword-fighting knights and bow-and-arrow-yielding heroes. It manifests itself in popular TV shows and fantasy games. Our language is peppered with royal inflection. We call people the king of this or the queen of that for being the best at what they do. These are not simply nostalgic memories of a long-lost time. Many European countries still maintain a monarchy of some sort. There is to this day a king of Spain, a queen of Denmark, and a king and queen of the Netherlands, and of course, Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom. Of course, these modern-day monarchs do not rule over their subjects as they did in King John's time. These countries are all democracies where the people elect their leaders who make the laws based on popular vote, not on the decision of a single person. 
Nowadays, the kings and queens of Europe take a position as more of a goodwill ambassador and have little to do with governance. However, the positions still exist. Even centuries later, there is still much significance placed on royal bloodlines. Queen Elizabeth II can trace her lineage back to King John. He is her 23rd great-grandfather. Her title of queen of one of the most powerful nations on the planet was granted to her simply because her father died without having any sons, and she was the eldest child. It was not earned, yet we continued to lend merit to the position. Taxpayers in the UK subsidize every aspect of the queen's life, including the upkeep and protection of her palaces and all her possessions. The current crown jewels fall into this category. So if someone were to find King John's crown jewels in the wash, what would happen? Would that person have claimed to them? Frankly, no. As they were in King John's possession at the time of their loss, they would technically still be property of the royal family. If found today, they would be reclaimed by the crown and incorporated into the current crown jewels on display in the Tower of London. While the person or group who made the discovery would likely be rewarded handsomely for their efforts, they would not be the legal owners of what they found. This could be a reason that there's not been a larger concentrated effort to locate King John's treasure in the wash. While the area is not an easy place to search for 800-year-old artifacts, There's ample evidence suggesting there is something down there. And treasure hunters around the world have made greater endeavors to find treasures that were much less documented than that of King John. The mystery of King John's lost treasure may very well remain a mystery simply because of the lack of an incentive to seek it out. The financial burden of the search is greater than the real-world value of the treasure. Furthermore, Would the discovery of the crown jewels truly hold strong cultural relevance? After all, the town of King's Lynn still thrives to this day because of the merchant guild that John granted them. Thanks to the actions of William Marshall, with the assistance of the Knights Templar, the line of succession of English kings remained intact and continues today. Had King John lived past 1216, it's quite possible that England would have been lost to the French, which would have surely altered European history. And King John is rightly remembered as Bad King John. His lost treasure's whereabouts have no impact on the terrible legacy he left behind. He is etched in history the way he should be, as a ruthless tyrant and despicable coward. These things would have come true regardless of whether the treasure was actually lost or stashed away in secret. Today, the treasure is valued at around $70 million, making it one of the most valuable missing treasures in the world. But as we have discussed, the soil where it's probably located is too volatile for excavation. So the hopes of finding it are limited to small-scale, pinpointed digs, the equivalent of the proverbial needle in a haystack. And with the chances of finding something so remote, one would assume that anyone who found the treasure would be able to keep it for themselves. But no, ownership would be handed over to a group of people whose possession of the jewels is based entirely on their birthright. Unlike in the United States, where the property owner holds claim to anything discovered on their land, the laws regarding treasure finds in the United Kingdom are a bit more stringent. 
Great Britain's Treasure Act of 1996 dictates that artifacts over 300 years old must be turned over to the state within 14 days of discovery. They are then assessed by the government and determined whether or not they should be in a museum. If not, they're returned to the person who made the discovery. The original crown jewels of England would definitely be determined as worthy for a museum, and the finder's fee would be settled by a board of experts. Half of that fee would go to the property owner, if found on private property. Since the majority of the wash is private farms, this would almost certainly be the case. While we may exalt the world of royals as a culture, it'd be difficult to find a capable treasure hunter whose motivation for taking on such a daunting task would be for the glory of queen and country, and also 50% of a finder's fee decided by an arbitrary panel. There may not be sufficient motivation to seek out the treasure in the wash, but based on the knowledge we have, can we say that the treasure does in fact exist? Did the crown jewels in King John's baggage train fall victim to the tides in the wash? Most likely, yes. From the evidence we've discussed, it does seem probable that King John sent his baggage train across the wash as he rode south to Wisbeach. He'd already begun to feel ill, and it makes sense that he would have wanted an easier trek than the unpredictable causeways through the marshlands. Then King John made it to Swineshead Abbey, where his condition worsened. Was he poisoned? Titillating as it may be, the poisoning story doesn't hold water. He was already experiencing symptoms of dysentery when he arrived. With medical treatment being what it was in the 13th century, his condition would have been aggravated no matter what. Many people succumbed to dysentery in this era, and King John was not immune to such a malady. The story that says John became sicker because he stuffed himself with pears and cider is more in line with his character. He was not an intelligent leader. There's no reason to believe he took care of himself physically with any more prudence. We can conclude that the treasure was lost and that it was a mere coincidence that John happened to fall sick and die within a week. But was the treasure found soon after? Or sometime in the hundreds of years between then and now? None of the stories of sudden wealth or hidden caves of gold are based in fact. They are all typical legends that tend to surround any sum of money buried anywhere in the world. There is no evidence of these theories, only speculation. Which leaves open the prospect of a conspiracy engineered by the Knights Templar. We know how close they were to John's family, and that John's closest confidant, William Marshall, was a member of the order. It isn't impossible to believe that they disappeared the treasure, and it still exists to this day in its original form, but in a secret hiding place known only to a chosen few. As much as we would love to imagine finding the hidden clues to the secret Templar lair filled with King John's riches, we have to stay grounded and rely on the facts at hand. Though the Templars are surrounded by intrigue, they were probably a lot more boring than people make them out to be. They were moneylenders and an army for hire, so maintaining sound business would have been their number one goal. While the Templars were an order that had great influence on the royal houses of Europe, they were still vassals of the Pope. King John had reconciled with the church by the time of his death, as his decorated tomb at Worcester Cathedral indicates. 
For the Templars to blatantly defy the Church and steal a treasure from a king in the good graces of Rome would be too great a gamble. Too many people would have had to be in on the secret, and it would have risked alienating other monarchs and prestigious individuals that took on their services. They would have become a rogue order separate from the Church, which would have been a loss that King John's treasure could not have alleviated. In short, we can rule out a Templar conspiracy on the simple reason that it would not have helped their bottom line. So what can we surmise about this case of missing valuables eight centuries later? Our educated guess is that the treasure was with the baggage train on the day it was overtaken by the tidal waters of the wash. And remains there to this day. Several small items and bits of metal from the time period of King John give credence to this conclusion. And historians have narrowed it down to a smaller area where the baggage train probably went down. But that isn't a certainty. The theory regarding the causeway could be inaccurate, and the items could be anywhere within a 50-mile radius. And since the land has been reclaimed for farming, there are buildings, houses, even whole towns built over places where the jewels may be buried. As of now, there's no way of knowing for sure without upturning everything and destroying the land. That is surely not going to happen. Perhaps a lucky farmer in the area will dig deep into his property and stumble upon a sword or a crown, which will reopen the search at a more precise location. But given how deep the treasure would be, if it's in the wash, that's unlikely. Maybe a patriotic English citizen with the financial resources will oversee a giant operation to find the jewels without upsetting the natural environment. Until then, the crown jewels will remain buried. While their discovery might make a fun local news story and a nice addition to the next coronation, it wouldn't make that much of a difference symbolically. As it is, the legends surrounding King John's treasure make for such great tales and theories that the culture might just be a bit poorer with their discovery. As long as they remain undiscovered, the fate of the crown jewels in the wash makes for great speculation and tall tales. They remind us of times past, filled with powerful kings and knights, great castles and vast treasures. And it reminds us that they were human, just like us. For while we revere the royals still, we are also allowed a sense of humor about them. When the statue of King John was revealed in 2016, 800 years after his death, the people of King's Lynn looked on in high regard for the man who brought the town into existence. Immediately after the unveiling, a local rapper named Gareth Calway stood next to the statue and sang a song about the monarch. The song was about how awful a king he was and how stupid he was for losing the crown jewels in the wash. The legend of bad King John lives on. His name is Mud, and that is a fitting final resting place for his most prized possession, England's original crown jewels. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. 
See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Justin Naughton and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.